Today's episode is brought to you by Doris. Doris is a premier distributor and manufacturer of wholesale arts and crafts supplies with over 60 years of trusted business. From affordable bulk supplies to on-trend craft items, Doris has a broad selection of over 45,000 items across hundreds of product categories. Visit Doris.com to learn more. Thank you so much, Doris. And now, here's the show. to episode 158 of the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals where you can strengthen your creative business, stay up to date on industry news, and build connections within our supportive trade association. Check it out at craftindustryalliance.org. Today on the show, we are talking about building a fiber business with my guest, Felicia Lowe. Felicia is a designer and entrepreneur, born and raised in Vancouver, Canada. Her lifelong passion for knitting, color, and design led her to starting the Sweet Georgia blog in 2004. A year later, Sweet Georgia was founded at her dining room table with nothing more than three skeins of sock yarn for sale on Etsy. Since then, Sweet Georgia has become a way of life where work and play are inseparable. In 2017, she published her first book, Dying to Spin and Knit, with Interweave Press, and currently, she's developing the School of Sweet Georgia to offer online fiber arts education to color-obsessed crafters. When she's not playing with yarn or hunting tacos and ramen, she's chasing her two young children around with her orange-loving husband. Felicia Lowe, welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's um, great to have you on the show. And I know we've been talking back and forth because we both kind of run membership-based sites. And it was so great to finally connect with you because um, I don't know that many people who have a site that's like a membership site. Um, So that was wonderful to finally uh, meet somebody else who does. So um, thanks for bonding with me over that. No, thank you. I know I was saying that like I've been following your work for so many, so many years and I've always been like very um, just just admired everything that you've done. And so it was cool to finally have a conversation and be like, oh my God, we're, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. It was great. <laughs> it was really good. So, um, okay. So I know you grew up in Vancouver and I'm just wondering what your parents did for work when you were growing up. Yeah. So um, my parents, they immigrated from Taiwan. Uh, they both met in university in um, this, like they studied anthropology. And so they moved to Canada and my dad was studying for a long time. He was studying at the University of British Columbia. He studied, again, anthropology and then later museology. Um, we moved to Toronto for about 10 years and he worked at the Royal Ontario Museum, so the ROM in Toronto. And he worked sort of designing um, the exhibit 
exhibits for the Far East Asian, uh, the wing of the museum. And so he did that for, yeah, a long time. And then um, he decided to stop that work. And then we moved back to Vancouver. And that's when he decided to be like full-time painter and printmaker. He transitioned into a full-time creative career. Wow, that is really neat. Both super neat uh, pursuits. So it sounds like you kind of grew up in a household that was creative, maybe. And I'm sure he brought some of those passions into into his home as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, color was just, it was our daily life. Like watching him paint, he painted in the living room of our house and okay, <laughs> everywhere that yeah. he worked. He was like, it was just like, it was in the middle of everything. And my mom was also very creative too. She really has a passion for writing and really wanted to be a writer. Um, and so that is something that she's always sort of done on the side. And she's uh, she's expressed that to, to us as a family. Like she hasn't really published anything, but she just always shared her love of writing with us. And so I knew that both of them were very, very creative from the very beginning. Um, however, you know, like we're Asian, growing up Asian, you know, stereotypical Asian family where, you know, we were not really necessarily encouraged to pursue a lot of that creativity because it's harder. Um, they really wanted us to just, you know, go to school, get good jobs, you know, come out and make like just have like a nice career because it was so much easier than what they had to go through. Right. So there was maybe pressure to have something more stable, more conventional, um, mm -hmm. something that would have maybe a higher income earning right from the start. Um, yeah. That kind of a job um, was was your was supposed to be your future. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so that is part of the reason why I was kind of like I kind of ended up in the School of Pharmacy at the University of British Columbia as well. Like I ended up in pharmaceutical sciences because that was going to be my stable day job. And then I was going to be able to do my crafting and all of my other passions outside of that. And so that was kind of what they were hoping that I would continue with. Yeah. And my understanding is that um, there's always jobs for pharmacists. I mean, that's what I've been told at least. Like it's a pretty, um, you know, stable career in that like there's a high demand for pharmacists. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I graduated, there was a very big demand for pharmacists in sort of more rural areas where there weren't getting very many, like there were just not very many people out there to do that work. And so, um, yeah, they were they were getting very good careers just right out of school um, to start working in a lot of other towns and to eventually move back to the big city. I think that that was kind of everyone's goal. Right. And did you did you like it? I mean, you must have liked it enough to finish the the degree, right? Like, I mean, I can imagine if I tried to get a medical degree, like, I just think I couldn't do it because I, I just like wouldn't have the capacity to finish, you know? So you must have like been had some aptitude for like the sciences and for being able to, to complete it. Yeah, I mean, I like science. I I was I have a very <laughs> I had a really good short term memory at the time when I was in university, so I could you know quickly learn something and quickly test on it, and um, I it was it was totally fine. So school was like not a big deal, but the thing that was a big deal was um, the fact that I had got in. I felt compelled, and I felt like it was my obligation to finish. So I finished the degree, even though I wasn't passionate about it, I wasn't like in love with it. There were aspects of it that um, I noticed, like looking back now, I realize uh, it indicated to me a different path. Like 
in pharmacy, there's obviously like you're you're learning a lot about medications and all these kinds of things. But then there's also in community practice, there's the practice of compounding, which is basically to take a whole bunch of um, medicine and put it together in a cream or an ointment or mix it together or mix it. And that it's kind of like cooking, but they call it compounding. And um, that was one of my favorite parts of the practice was to like make the compound. So if somebody had a cream they had to make, I'm like, oh, I'll make it. And I would run to the back of the dispensary and I would like mix it up because for me, that was super fun. And I think it kind of indicated to me later on, like that I really need that tactile kind of work. I enjoy that mixing and blending and that kind of work. The other thing that kind of came up for me is that one time we had to work on a group project and it was supposed to be researching something to do with AIDS. And I did none of the research. I did none of the reading, but in my group, I was the one who put together the website to present the information that we had found as a team. And again, that was like really indicative to me of where my passion actually was, like what my interest actually was. I, I really wanted to do the presentation aspect. I didn't really, I wasn't really that interested in the research aspect. Right. So there you were um, mixing compounds together and then creating a website to show how it's done. <laughs> Sounds a little familiar to what you're doing now. Very interesting. Um, yeah, so funny. And I do think, you know, we try to suppress sometimes the things we're best at. But if we were to actually like sit back and, and notice them or have somebody else point them out to us, um, and when we're lucky enough to be able to do that, um, it's really right there in front of us. Um, so that's that's really interesting. And, and I know that you did learn the fiber arts when you were younger. So you had um, a Fisher-Price toy loom, which is super cool. I need to go on eBay and see what this looks like. But um, what do you remember about this loom? Oh, I still have the loom. Oh, I you passed do? it on to my daughter. Yeah, oh, she uses cool. it now. It's it's. It's amazing. Like, I'm so sad that they don't make this toy they anymore. They need to because, revive it. Yeah. Well, yeah. They have, like, the retro toys come back. Fisher-Price is making, like, the record player. They're doing, like, a whole bunch of the re retro toys. But this loom is awesome. It's literally just, like, a couple of pieces of plastic. You screw them together with these big screws and big bolts. And then they make, uh, like, a frame. And they have a built-in, um, you know, like, uh, uh, <laughs> they have a built-in, like, heddle. So, basically, you turn this little shaft, this little lever, and it will change sheds for you. And it's the most fantastic thing. And uh, you just put in like worsted weight yarn and you just string it up and then you can start weaving plain weave with it. It's the most fantastic thing. I need one. Yeah. Like for myself. <laughs> That's so cool. So you had that when you were a kid and um, you used to, you know, make a project on it and it must have sort of had an impression on you that you saved it. Yeah, so I think I used it, I remember using some white acrylic yarn on it, and I made myself a little bag. Um, so I wove the cloth, and I took it off, sewed up the edges, and made myself a little bag, and it was just amazing. It was like, I can make things. I can, this is cloth. I can make things. And um, I don't think that I made too many other things after that, because it's like, okay, I know how this works. Um, and then I was kind of like done. But my parents packed away the loom, and they saved it. But it it was always like in the back of my mind. I I had I had had that experience as a kid, and so I knew that it was possible 
to make cloth. And so um, later on, you know, I taught myself how to knit. I got a lot of library books and just, you know, I was really <laughs> kind of a nerdy kid. I'd go to the library every Saturday, take out 20 books. And that was kind of like that. That's how I learned a lot of these things. So I learned knitting that way. Um, ended up wanting to explore sewing because I watched my mom sew. Uh, she was like on the floor cutting fabric to make herself a dress. And I remember taking the cutoffs of that fabric and then sewing my own things and learning how to do things that way. And so just very early on, I got absorbed into all of these different crafts. Okay, right. So you were a crafty person. And so um, when you were in college, too, you did some um, beyond that um, project for the, the, the AIDS group project. Um, you did some graphic design and some web development for other people, right? Like so, sort of side hustles. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I started, um, it was through actually uh, the UBC Dance Club, the University of British Columbia Dance Club. At the time, I think it was like 50 years. I don't know how many years it's now been, but it's a ballroom dancing club at the university and they host classes, they host events, they host competitions. And um, when I was graduating from high school, my girlfriends and I, we decided as a joke, why don't we take ballroom dance classes this summer? And so we went to the community center. We took some ballroom classes, but I actually got hooked on it. And um, so when I joined uh, the University of British Columbia, I joined the dance club there. And it was through the dance club that um, they, it was like, I don't know, 1994, no, 1997, no, 1994. And, you know, the internet was just starting to come out and somebody had made a web page, not a website, just a page for the club. And I saw the webpage and I was like, oh my God, that's amazing. That's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. And I eventually became the person who took over that job of creating the website for the club. And through that then started to pick up my first clients in doing web development work. But I just, I thought it was the most miraculous thing. <laughs> and so what were you coding in that in? What kind of programming? Just pure HTML, just writing it in text. Okay. So you sort of just uh, taught yourself HTML basically. I taught myself HTML. And then after that, there was a stint where I taught myself cold fusion and attached databases to it. And then from there learned PHP and MySQL and just, uh, just continued on that whole thing. Like I've, I love that side of it, like that mathy, um, you know, logical, putting things together, making things work. The, the coding stuff was fun for me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Great. So something else to kind of teach yourself. Okay. So you came out of school with this sort of conglomeration of skills and and the the color theory and sort of that piece of it. Did you have formal training in that? I mean, obviously your father was very artistic and so perhaps it kind of came naturally to you, but um, did you take art classes or how did you know about, you know, about color, um, which is such a big part of your job now? For sure. For sure. I think that the color did actually come very intuitively to me. But, you know, when I was starting to, you know, put myself out there as a designer and doing graphic design and doing web design work, um, there was very much this, like, a, like people have, the imposter syndrome of not 
thinking that I was qualified enough to do any of this work. And so I went out and I went to the Emily Carr um, School of Art and Design here in Vancouver. And I started to take classes there, continuing education classes there for design, for color. Um, I went to like another local college for just to learn as much as I possibly could as a way, not necessarily to learn, but almost like to, to, to validate my skills to say that I was good enough to do this work. So um, I did take a lot of classes in color and color theory and design and all this kind of stuff afterwards. But it was kind of like to to to, to have that solid foundation. Right. To get like the credential so you could. Yeah. Yeah. Have that mark of a stamp of approval. Right. Exactly. Someone else telling you, oh, you're you're OK now. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes we need that in life. It's yeah. like, you know, that's OK. Um, so. All right. So um, back in 2004, and we talked in the introduction about you starting your blog, the Sweet Georgia blog. Um, you were knitting a sweater, a Rowan sweater, and sort of wanting to know a little bit more about it and made kind of this discovery of knitting blogs. So talk about that discovery, that moment, that sweater, and, and sort of what that was like for you. Yeah, so when I had sort of picked up knitting again, um, the local yarn store, they just, they had all these beautiful Rowan patterns and all the beautiful Rowan yarns. And I stumbled upon one of the latest issues and it was, there was a sweater in there called Audrey. And it was kind of like a boat neck, it had ribbing and it was just, it looked like, oh, I can make this. So, you know, I started to look online and there was um, a knit along and I'd never heard of a knit along. I didn't know what that was, but these women, were like self-organizing themselves and you know everybody was posting pictures of the sweater that they had made um, them wearing the sweater they posted progress photos they talked about challenges they talked about how they did a bind off it was it was amazing and it was just this network of all these web pages journal entries by people and I was like oh my gosh I want to be able to participate I want to make this sweater I want to join the group I want to be able to share what I've made and um and I think that that's kind of where I sort of discovered that people were making knitting blogs and I'd, I'd never heard of it before I'd never seen anything like it I want to take a minute now to talk a little bit about our sponsor, Doris. Doris is a premier wholesaler in the arts and crafts industry with over 60 years of trusted business. With over 45,000 items across hundreds of product categories, they're your one-stop source for supplies for your craft hobby, business, or store. Whether you make items to sell at craft fairs and your Etsy shop, or you teach workshops, or you make craft kits to sell, find all the supplies and products you need for your handcrafted items at Doris. Since its beginnings, Doris has prided itself on being focused on makers and independent business owners. Buying your supplies wholesale direct means more profit for you. Their top categories for makers include craft basics and tools, jewelry making supplies, wood and unfinished surfaces, floral, art supplies, paper crafts, and so much more. Let Therese be both your DIY source and your resource. 
their website and blog, feature trend reports, small business tools and articles, project ideas, and tutorials and more. To best serve small businesses, Doris offers a low minimum order of just $75. And all orders ship at no additional cost with their freight included program. So there's an exclusive offer for Craft Industry Alliance listeners. Just visit Doris.com and use the promo code CIA20, that's CIA20, at checkout for 20% off your order. The offer is valid through December 31st, 2019. So go act now at Doris.com. Thank you so much, Doris. And now back to my conversation with Felicia. Yeah, I remember. Um, so I had a similar beginning story where, um, you know, there was a woman in Australia who started a challenge where it was like you were to make a softy, like a, a sewn stuffed animal, um, like once a month around a theme and then post a picture of it. And that's what you did to participate. And I thought in the beginning, like you had to send it in, you know, like somewhere. <laughs> I was like, how do you do this? You know, and it was like, no, no, no. You just post the picture on Flickr. Like that was it. That was how you did it. But like hundreds and hundreds of people from all over the world are participating. And then I was like, I want to do this, you know, and then how do I do it? How do I get started? And then it was like, how do I take it to the next level? I need a blog, you know, um, and and that was sort of my entry point. Um, but that discovery that there were people out there that were participating in some sort of community based, you know, interaction where they were sharing information and coming together around this singular activity that I also really wanted to be part of um, was really an incredible discovery. And so I, I totally relate to that and that, that sort of very early crafty internet moment. Um, it was it was really exciting. So um, so how did you come up with this name, Sweet Georgia, and what was your blog about when it began? So initially, um, I started this blog, and it was around this same time that I was very passionate about baking bread. And uh, it was like in the back of my mind, this just this, this little little idea that it would be so cool to open a bakery and uh, have it be like downtown on Georgia Street in Vancouver. And so I, I kind of gave the name Sweet Georgia to the blog because I thought I was going to write about baking. But I actually, I think I really wrote like one or two posts about bread and then the rest of it was all about knitting. Amazing. And so then I just continued on with the whole knitting thing. <laughs> that is an amazing origin story. I had no idea. Okay. So it was really about something really different from what you first thought about um, yeah. when you started. And did you ever consider changing the name or do you just sort of feel like it came to encompass something else and that's okay? Yeah, it, it just came to encompass. It, it was just kind of like my alter ego, I guess, in some ways. And it was just like, well, this is all the things that I'm really excited about. And it doesn't necessarily have to be about Georgia Street. It doesn't necessarily have to be about baking. Um, yeah, I, 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 I finally sort of realized that, you know, bakers have to wake up really, really early in the morning in order to like get the bread going and all that kind of stuff before the bakery opens. And I was like, I don't really think I want to have that kind of a lifestyle. So... <laughs> 
yeah, I just continued on with the rest of the things that I enjoyed. And I was like, oh, I'll just, I guess I'll just keep the name. So my blog was almost about was almost um, a food blog, um, which is so funny because um, yeah, I the huge number of the beginning posts were about decorating um, birthday cakes because that's what I really wanted to learn how to do. I just had a baby and it was like I really want to make her cakes for her first birthday, and I would just bake and bake and bake and decorate cakes. Um, and at a certain point, I was like, I have to stop doing this because we have way too many cakes. Like I would give the babysitter the whole cake, like every time she would yeah. come, I was like, here's a cake. Um, um, it's just like, I can't keep doing this, but it very nearly could have just become that, you know? Um, so it's so interesting. So, okay. So, and, and I also think it's interesting to think about like how a name becomes abstracted, right? So like you don't have to name your, your business or your, or your blog, you know, exactly what it, what it's about. It can just mm-hmm. have a name that's sort of, it is what it is. And people come to associate it with, um, what it is you do. I know. And this is actually kind of like a tricky thing, right? Because like Sweet Georgia became sort of like my alter ego, like my identity in a lot of ways. And then like when I also had my first babies, like I changed as a person and the things that I was interested in, things that I was wanting to write about also changed. And that was a real big struggle for me because then at what point people recognize you for the thing that you do and that that identity that you created or what they see. But when you change, can they change with you? Can you just can you just change what you write about? Like, I, I don't know. I struggled a long time with that whole concept. Yeah. So and, yeah. How, how did it change for you? Like what what were you doing before babies and what were you doing in midst in the midst of all of that and afterward? Um, like how what what shifted? And um, yeah, tell us a little bit about that that time. Oh, I think one of the main things that shifted was that just I had no more time to make things. So before, before kids, like I, I was just all in, I was just seven days a week, just always either making things or working on the business or just, I was very, I was very involved in every part of my, my business and every part of Sweet Georgia. And so every photo, every yarn that I spun, I take a photo and all these kinds of things. And then, um, after having kids, just all of that crafty time vanished for me. And then it was a very big struggle to say, well, can I have a crafting blog? Can I have a knitting blog when I don't knit anything anymore? Because like I have carpal tunnel because I'm all swollen and like I'm not making things like, can I continue to have this? Is it still me? Is it, is it, does it still represent who I am and what I do? And uh, yeah, it, it, it took some time to get, yeah. That. So what did you do? I mean, did you just take a break and not post anything? Did you post about other things or how did you get through it? Because clearly you're still here. You've still got a business, which we'll get to what your business looks like now, which is it's it's thriving. So um, so clearly you made it through. Um, but that that is a rough period. And, um, you know, you did have this business before a really big life change. And I think a lot of people really struggle um, when their lives change, whether it's through an illness or through taking care of somebody in their family for a period of time, I mean, or moving, having a family member deployed. I mean, there's so many things that happen in life and that's the reality. Um, and then you have to sort of look at what you're doing and say, well, what do I do with it now? 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. So I mean, so before I had uh, our kids, I had business coaches and I had um, people who were very, very helpful. And I, I leaned on them for support because they had had kids and they had had businesses as well. And so I was asking, well, how do you do this? Like, how do I have a business and have kids at the same time? And they were very much like, you need to set up systems, you need to delegate, you need to create like procedures so that people can follow the things that you've built and created and keep keep things going the same way. Um, And so I delegated some of that writing to other people on our team. And I'm super, super thankful that they they just, they kept the whole thing going by continuing to post, you know, posts about knitting and we came up with other topics. And so I just started to bring more people in to the blog and the writing side of things. Okay. Yeah. I think that's how I kind of kept it going. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. And so by choosing to hire or contract out or even just have guest posters, um, that's Mm -hmm. one way to sort of keep things going in an interim period or just for good and take some of that pressure off of you. Um, And in reality, too, what it can help you to do is to make your business um, a little bit separated from you as a personality. And so um, it's actually probably healthier um, because in, in the long run, if you ever wanted to sell your business, for example, it's not so personality dependent. Um, so it could actually, you know, make your business more valuable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Like just speaking about this whole identity idea, like part of the business coach, her, um, her, her advice to me was that I needed to create separation between what was the business and what was me. And to have those things be two different identities, that my identity was too tied up in the thing that I had created. Um, and that's that's challenging for business reasons, for emotional reasons, for lots of different reasons. Yeah, especially when your business sort of happens almost by accident because it started mm-hmm. as a hobby. Um, it started as a passion, something you just love and wanted to share with the world, and then became an Etsy shop that grew because people were demanding more of what you were making, and it's really coming from you. Um, mm-hmm. And then to get to the point where you do need to make that separation in, in that realization that you need to do it can be really difficult. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So let's talk about um, the growth of the business. So um, you, you had the blog. Uh, we talked about the name and, and the shift in content. Um, and so what were the first products? Um, you, I said in the introduction, you started with just three skeins of yarn um, and an Etsy shop. So it sounds like your Etsy shop might have started right around when mine did, which was July of, 20, of 2005. Um, I think Etsy was still in beta then. Is that around when you started? And what, what did you put up there and kind of how did that grow into a business for sure so i started september 9th 2005 all right so early yeah. etsy woohoo very very early etsy etsy when like you could only check out one thing at a time yeah and um, etsy was still and, free then like right to list the items oh, yeah. there was no payment that's true yes. that's right yeah yeah so i just i started with like just posting three skeins of yarn and those sold out like pretty much right away in the same day and um then I just like, oh, I guess I'll just post some more stuff. And then it sold and I'll post some more stuff. And then it sold. And then it started to get to the point where, yeah, I, I was trying to do like updates and updates. And then, yeah, it was because Etsy could only check out one thing at a time. And I was like, well, this is not really the way to go. And so I had to create my own website and start putting things on my own e-commerce site. And then one day I had put down um, that we were going to do an update and then sent everybody to the website on that day. And of course that crashed the website and then nobody could get in, nobody could buy anything because nobody could get on the server. And 
then I think then I had to like start switching to some other things, but it was, it was, it was very challenging at the very beginning. Yeah. And this was yarn that you were dyeing yourself or were you spinning and dyeing it? No, I, well, yeah, at the beginning, my idea was also to sell hand spun. Uh, so I did spin a little bit of yarn and some of that yarn was up in the Etsy store. Um, but yeah, uh, it was mostly yarn that I had dyed. And even though I had learned to dye by starting to dye fiber, I didn't really start posting fiber until a little bit later. I was mostly spinning the fiber and then posting it. Okay, got it. Um, great. And so um, so that kind of grew. Clearly the demand was there. People were basically, this was before social media, so people were reading your blog, loving what you were creating and then as soon as you would post it it would sell out so um, the demand was there for these unique yarns right away yeah the it was it was it was quite uh it, it just grew faster than I could have imagined um and I was just dying and dying on the weekends and finding extra time to die and then realizing that uh when you start having a store then you have to label things and take photos of them before you can post them. And then you have to wrap them and ship them. And all of a sudden, it was not just, oh, I'm dying yarn on the weekends and it's super fun. All of a sudden, it became like a, 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 a big thing. Yeah. And you also need consistency, right? Like that's another big aspect of this. Like people expect like to be able to buy it again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's actually one of the things that I tried to put in place very, very early on is this idea of consistency, because I know there's a lot of dyers who still work this way in, in which they make a whole bunch of unique yarn and then they post it up on Etsy and then it's gone and then they'll make another batch. So I found that that is absolutely great in terms of like scarcity and people really are excited to get it and all that kind of stuff. But for a knitter, a user at the end at the end, when they're working on their project, if they run out of yarn, what are they going to do? Um, if they need to like add another skein and they need the dye knots to match, what are you going to do? And so I wanted to resolve these issues for the people who are using my yarn. And I wanted them to have consistency and reliability in what they were going to be getting. And so I very, very much focused on the idea of creating colorways that were repeatable, that were very, very... Um, reliable and consistent from batch to batch. Right. That and was one of the one of the big things that I wanted to create from the very beginning. And I know it's kind of like opposite to what people say about creating things that are scarce, things that um, are very, very uniquely created. Um, but the, these issues were important for me. I really wanted to resolve them for the knitter. And this is where your compounding uh, expertise <laughs> comes into play. <laughs> um, but I also think, you know, I, I hear you on the scarcity um, piece, and I think there's definitely a place for that. But I also think there's like a place for it being, I wanted to say the word professionalism, and it's not quite that, but um, it's that reliability for the consumer, um, I, I do think helps to build a brand in a way. So um, so I, I think that that's an interesting thing to think through when you're building a business like this, for sure, sort of just deciding where you where you're going to fall 
Um, and, uh, and certainly you're correct in that as soon as you start to have this level of demand, suddenly you need to set up an area for shipping and start to figure out how to, um, you know, print labels efficiently and, um, and you know, source shipping supplies um, economically and, um, and also just have people probably help you with dyeing. Um, did you hire some folks to help you with that? And what does your team look like? now when it comes to the production studio yeah so for a very very long time it was just me doing everything on on my own and uh it got to the point where it was just it was just too much and so i started to hire i hired my first person and they came and they helped like stick labels and tie and twist and make like just package the skeins and things like that and then hired someone else to come in and also help package and um then it got to the point where I actually got married and went on my honeymoon and I'd gone like for two weeks or something like that and it came back and then I realized that I could never leave my business um, because then no yarn would get dyed. Like nothing would happen if I wasn't there physically dyeing yarn every single day um, and that I could never go on vacation. I, this, this honeymoon was tricky, like all of these kinds of things. And so coming to the realization that uh, it was very important for me to be able to teach someone else how to die if I was ever going to consider having a family, right? Being able to be away from my business for any length of time. It was something that was absolutely necessary. So I started to teach these girls how to do the dyeing and gradually added more people to do more packaging and then added more people to do more dyeing. And so now we have a team of about 12 people at our studio and um, there's about four four people who are dying consistently and then we also have some people on the team who package but we also have people on the team who are there's a production manager there's someone who's a sales manager we have a marketing person now and we have like our design director so there's just everybody has a lots of different roles now um, and this is like 12 of us together to, to, to do this business okay and is everybody local or are some of them remote uh, so Tabitha, who's our design director, she's remote. She lives in Tennessee. Okay. And everybody else is local. And everybody else is in Vancouver. Okay. And yeah. are they contractors or are they actually employees? They're actually employees. They're actually employees. So that's pretty yeah. major. Um, mm-hmm. And was it ever, does it ever feel, I mean, I have one part-time employee now and in, in a, a team of contractors. And does it ever feel scary like, you know, having that pressure of payroll and feeling like, you know, I'm, I've got all these people and they're depending on me for their paycheck. And they, you know, the business has got to perform because, you know, that's their livelihood now. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is absolutely um, something that is on my mind all of the time. Um, You know, I, I think a lot about this, about how like, oh, I would love to dye. You know, I love dyeing yarn. I love color. It's it's fun. It's fun to play with it. But, you know, it's a luxury for me to be able to do that kind of work because the work that I have to do now is to make sure that the business moves forward, that it's it's that that it's doing well because I'm responsible for this team of people. I'm responsible for everyone and um and if they get to pay their rent or if they get to eat, all of these kinds of things, it's, it's extremely important. So um, I need to focus on ways to make the business function properly and efficiently and effectively. Right. I mean, I think that that's mm-hmm. something that 
maybe not everybody realizes, but when you do have employees, that kind of pressure is on you and not that it steals any kind of joy, but it just is important to think through um, that you're, th- you know, thinking about that. And, and as you said, you've really become um, a teacher. You've taught all of these um, women who work for you now how to do portions of the job that you used to do all by yourself. And now you've also started a school, the School of Sweet Georgia, which you started, I think, maybe two years or so ago, um, Mm -hmm. which is an online video-based fiber arts school. um, And it basically is teaching everyone who wants to learn how to do what you do, which is dyeing and spinning, weaving, knitting, color theory, all of that. Um, And, you know, you have all of these videos and information for them. And um, so I wondered what your motivation initially was for getting the School of Sweet Georgia um, together and getting it up and running. And then a sort of a a follow-up question to that was if you ever had concern like, or heard people, you know, warn you, oh, aren't you, you know, training your competitors? Absolutely. Actually, so this is this is the big challenge. This is actually why it took so long for me to even teach my own team how to do any dyeing. Um, I had been warned by other people who were like, oh, if you teach anybody in your team how to dye, then they're going to run off and start their own shop. Like, aren't you afraid of competition? Aren't you afraid of these kinds of things? And it just got to the point where yeah, I I can't continue to do it all myself if we're going to scale and if we're going to grow. And so teaching those first few people how to die, I felt like was the most life-changing thing for my business, for me. And so I felt kind of like um, all good things happened because I taught people. And then again, when people started to ask me to teach classes on how to die, I was very apprehensive because I was like, well, am I not teaching you how to make the thing that I make to sell isn't that kind of backwards isn't that that, that's a poor decision right and I talked to this other um, person who started a a yoga chain a yoga studio chain here in Canada and she gave me the advice to teach everyone to teach everyone with love and that all good things happen when you teach people and so I very much followed this idea that to be generous, to be uh, inviting, to just look at um, trying to take the skills that I know how to do and to teach them to other people because ultimately my goal is to create a bigger pie. And the bigger pie meaning that I'm trying to bring people into this community who also love the fiber arts. So it's not so much about like, oh, I make this yarn and I sell it and I'm like looking for more people to buy the yarn. That's not at all what my goal is here. My goal is like, I want more people to love the fiber arts. I love what I I just, I want more people to enjoy knitting and feeling the yarn go through their fingers and seeing the colors transform as they're making stitches. I want to see you know, the enjoyment that people get when they like learn how to weave or when they learn how to spin, when they get to touch a hand spun yarn, like all of those things, that's what I'm after. So it's not so much about like the the final product. It's really about engaging people in the enjoyment of making these things. And so that's what the school is meant to do. It's meant to share these skills with people so that people can be exposed to them and hopefully they might catch the bug and then go down those rabbit holes, whichever whichever one they might choose. Right. And the the reality is is that nobody is Felicia Lowe. 
And so nobody, except for you, and so nobody is going to be able to replicate what exactly Sweet Georgia is. You know what I mean? So even if they learn from you how to dye yarn, um, how to knit, how to spin, how, you know, how color theory works, etc., um, they're not going to be able to create the exact business that you have um, and if they were to, people would call them out on it. Like, excuse me, <laughs> we've already seen that. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. um, each person is unique. And so that's going to be reflected in the business that they did create. Um, so and also many people aren't after starting a business. What they're after is learning about the craft. Yeah, absolutely. So not not everybody is going to want to dye their own yarn, but people want the ability to enjoy that or like to enjoy what you can do with that hand-dyed yarn afterwards. A lot of the time, I think we we create this hand-dyed yarn, we create the hand-dyed fiber, and um, then you, you have this this beautiful thing in your hands and you're like, well, what do I do with it now? Like, what do I make with it? How do I use it and not so-called ruin it? Um, how, how, what can I, what can I do with it? And so what I'm very much trying to do is take people like beyond the dyed product, but like, how do we knit with it? What is the best way to use it when you're knitting with it? You know, what's the best kind of project to use with a hand dyed yarn? How can you take your hand dyed yarn and how can you weave it? How can you take your hand dyed fiber and spin something with it and spin that yarn and then weave that yarn and make a cloth and, and that whole spectrum of the fiber arts, I feel like um, people just get the very, very beginning of it. And I want to kind of open the gate and then show them all the other cool stuff that can be done. Right, exactly. And and that's a wonderful thing. And so not something to be fearful about explaining or um, introducing people to. So And so um, Sweet George is going to be celebrating its 15th anniversary in 2020, which is really amazing. I can't believe it's been 15 years. <laughs> that's really crazy. I know. So, it gave me goosebumps when you said that. I know. That. <laughs> it's like, what? Um, so do you have any special plans yet? Are you still thinking about what you might do for that special 15th anniversary celebration? I am still thinking about it. I think like our, our business is actually going through um, kind of a big transition right now. Um, and there's 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 definitely going to be changes happening next year. Uh, but it's something that I'm definitely still kind of like wrestling with and working through right now. Okay. But it's, but it's going to be something good. Something good. Okay. All right. So we'll keep our eyes out for that. And I also, <laughs> I know that you um, really feel like it's important since you do have children. How old are your kids now? Oh, my oldest is six and the youngest is three and a half. Okay. So you still have young kids at home now. And I know that it's important to you to create a family-friendly work environment for your employees, for your team who are at the Dye Studio and who are, you know, creating the product. So I'm wondering, you know, sort of how you do that and what that actually looks like day to day in your company. 
Yeah. So, I mean, people are able to flex to their schedules and what they need. So like two of the people on our team are actually husband and wife and they also have young kids. And so they had kids just a little bit before we did. And, uh, when they needed to go on mat leave, like one of them would cover for the others. They would also have like different times, different shifts, like one would start earlier, um, and then could go pick up the kids after school. And then the other one would start later, uh, take the kids to school, start later, stay later, just like everybody um, is able to bend and flex their schedule to what they need. Same as, you know, Tabitha working in Tennessee, she just, she works the hours that she needs to work. And ultimately at the end of the day, I don't need to watch the clock and I don't want to watch anybody's clock. I want to make sure that the things that we said we were going to get done, that we do them. And if those things happen, then I'm not concerned. Right. Okay. Yeah. I think that that's a nice thing to to sort of convey for people to think through and I also know you've um you have exhibited at H&H is that right in in Cologne Germany um and I'm sort of fascinated by that show I'm hoping to go at some point and I'm just wondering if you can say a few words about what it was like and how maybe it differed from something like TNNA yeah so we've been going to TNNA for many years. I can't remember how many years, but we've been going to a lot of those shows in in the States. And then four years ago, we started going to H&H. And I'd been told about H&H like for, for a long time. They're like, oh, you need to go to this show. So H&H is bigger than TNA in terms of floor size. And it covers a, a much broader spectrum of crafts. So when I go to H&H, you see like Bernina, the sewing machine manufacturer, has a ginormous booth. You know, like Faf will have a booth. Um, so sewing machine manufacturers are there. Fabric designers are there. Fabric manufacturers are there. Um, what else? Like a lot of people who, well, obviously like tons and tons of yarn is also there. Um but yeah, a lot more of the other parts of crafts, like not just the needle arts that we focus on for Tina and A. I think at Tina and A, it's mostly, it's mostly yarn, yarn and needle tools, and then of course needlepoint and stuff like that. I don't see a lot of needlepoint at H and H. Maybe they're at a different show. But the H and H seems to cover like the bigger sewing machine manufacturers and things like that. Okay, and is the vibe yeah. is the vibe different or the kind of quality of display? Oh, the quality of display is very, very high. Like we are positioned next to the Guterman booth and Guterman is like the sewing machine, I mean, the sewing thread company. And they've been around for, I don't know, like 175 years or something like that. And their booth is like they build a full on restaurant inside their booth every year. So you, you, they, they build a, a, it's a giant construction where you walk into the thing and it looks like a store and it has all of their thread is all displayed. It's just like a retail store. And then you go to the back of the store and there's a restaurant where people are sitting down and, um, they're having meals, they're having breakfast, they're having coffee, they're having wine, and they conduct their business at the restaurant while they're having coffee. And, uh, I feel like very much like that is how TNA has differed from uh, H&H. TNA is uh, more like you walk up and you see everybody's booths and um, you're kind of doing business right there within your booth. But at H&H, it seems like it's more done over over coffee, over drinks. Um, and it's a very much about the relationship building over a long period of time. So we were told not to expect very much unless you go to H&H for at least three years. 
And it was in our fourth year that we're starting to see people come back and be like, oh, they'll say, oh, you know, um, have you have you been here before? So, yeah, this is our fourth year. And then they're like, oh, okay, now I can talk to you. That sort of a feeling Um, they want to see that there's longevity, that you're going to be there year after year after year. Interesting. Okay, cool. Mm Um, so, um, that's interesting to hear. Um, okay. So I want to make sure we get to your recommendations because you've got several good ones here. Um, so the first one is your Ashford e-spinner. I have to say, I don't know anything about this product. Oh yeah. Okay. So I am very excited about my new spinning wheel. It's an electronic spinning wheel. And, um, part of what I've been thinking about is how, you know, with young kids and things like that, I've put my beautiful, you know, treadle spinning wheels away for a couple of years now because I didn't want them to get dinged. I don't want them to get damaged. And so I haven't done very much spinning. And just a few weeks ago, I got this electronic spinner that I put on an Ikea rolling cart and I, I wheel it around to all the rooms on the ground floor with me. And then I just spin wherever I need to be. Like if I'm cooking dinner, I'll just wheel it into the kitchen and I can spin a little bit while I'm waiting. It's been life changing for me because I feel like I get to do these, uh, my crafts, the things that I love to do, and I get to fit them into these tiny little micro moments of my life uh, where I'm just standing around for like a few minutes. That is the best. Yeah. I'm a big fan of fitting in things into micro moments. (laughs) My life is full of micro moments and has been since my kids were born 15 years ago. So yeah, mm -hmm, that sounds good. Um, Okay. And you've also been reading a book called Creative Calling by Chase Jarvis, and he's the founder of Creative Live. And I have a a class on Creative Live, although when I was out in San Francisco filming it, I have to say I didn't get to meet him. But he's since left Creative Live, and now he's written this book called Creative Calling. I have read it what is it about so it's basically about creating a creative practice and it like I think well he's still with creative live he's still still there yeah 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 for sure for sure he's the founder he's like he's all in on that oh I Um, didn't know that okay sorry my mistake yeah no yeah so I think I I heard about Chase Jarvis like many 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 years ago when um well when we got married because our wedding photographers introduced us to his work and um, he was making YouTube videos at the time and then just since then all of this stuff has kind of like morphed into creative live which is online school for creative courses and things like that and so he's written this book that's just come out like a couple a couple weeks ago a couple months ago about creating a creative practice for your own life and so I've been reading through it and um, there's like a number of phases you know create an idea design your 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 routines and your habits and your space and then execute and then amplify which is basically to share your work with the world so I think all of these steps is very very important but the section that I've been reading about is um, about creating your signature style and like we were saying that nobody can be me or everyone is very individual everybody's got their own thing but it actually takes quite a lot of work to find out what your thing is, like find out what your style is so that way when somebody looks at your work that they can immediately tell that that's something that you created. Mm-hmm. It is and hard. Yeah. 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 And so right now, like I am very much into weaving and I want to express what I've done in hand dyed yarn and express that in hand woven things. And my challenge right now is trying to, consolidate my ideas and clarify and focus so that I'm not making 
a hundred random handwoven things, but that I start to hone in on one thing that I really, really like and to try to create a signature style around a handwoven product. So that's kind of my personal goal for 2020 is to really focus on that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. And I know um, Lisa Congdon has a book out, a new book out now about developing your creative voice. Um, that's sort of along that same line. And she explores that idea. Um, and I have that book. It's really um, an inspiring book as well. But you're right that that is it is hard. It's harder than it looks to develop something that when people see it immediately, they know it's yours. Um, so that's a good one. And then, um, you also wanted to recommend a Netflix series, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, um, specifically in, uh, an episode, um, that is the Vancouver episode. So breakfast, lunch, and dinner is like this show that's, uh, hosted by David Chang. David Chang is a chef at Momofuku and, uh, he just basically travels to all these different places, kind of like the Anthony Bourdain shows, travels to different locations and then meets up with a, a friend and they just go to different places they eat and so the Vancouver episode is episode number one and it's so cool because um Seth Rogen went to high school in a high school not not too far away from my high school and so the way that he describes how things were when we grow up in that time is exactly my experience of growing up in Vancouver and and it just he really actually represents Vancouver really, really, really well in this episode. It takes him to all these fabulous places, takes him all the hole in the wall places to have um, snacks and donuts and dim sum and all these kinds of things. It, it, it was a great episode. But at the very, very end, they're sitting in the barbecue place that's in Richmond, which is where we live. And they're having this conversation about um, what their best work is and Seth Rogen is talking about like how he does all this stuff he runs a charity and he produces his thing and he has like a, a production studio but the thing that he does the best he says is to do writing so he just wishes that he could spend more time writing like the writing is the best thing that he does but he spends the least amount of time doing that thing and then David Chang who's the chef also like runs these restaurants, writes books, has a podcast, like does all this stuff. And he said that the very best thing that he does is working with food, but he has to do all this other stuff. He's got all these other obligations and all these other responsibilities. And so he spends all of his time doing other stuff, not the food stuff. And so both of them, these two creative people are sitting there talking about how they just wish they could spend more time doing the thing that they love to do. And I was like, I was like tearing up while listening to this because I was like, that's, I'm not not alone. Yeah. (laughs) That's exactly what I feel like. That's exactly what I feel all the time. Like I just, I I think for all of us, we all just want to find more time to spend that time doing the things that we love to do. Yeah. And then the more successful you are because of that thing, it seems like the less amount of time you actually have to do it. So it's hard. Um, Well, Felicia, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you so much. This was really wonderful. I appreciate your time, too. Today's episode was brought to you by Doris, a premier distributor and manufacturer of wholesale arts and craft supplies. With over 45,000 items across hundreds of product categories. Doris is offering an exclusive promotion for Craft Industry Alliance listeners. Visit Doris.com and use the promo code CIA20 
that's CIA20, at checkout for 20% off your order. The offer is valid through December 31st, 2019. Thank you so much, Doris. And you've been listening to the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals. And when you become a member of Craft Industry Alliance, you get in-depth coverage of craft industry news, the opportunity to connect with fellow professionals for advice and support, and access to an educational library filled with ideas, tools, and resources to help you as you build your business. Join us at craftindustryalliance.org. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time. Thank you.